Specialty Story, session number 98. Whether you are a pre-med or a medical student, you've answered the calling to become a physician. Soon you'll have to start deciding what type of medicine you'll want to practice. This podcast will tell you the stories of specialists from every field to give you the information to make sure you make the most informed decision possible when it comes to choosing your specialty. Welcome to Specialty Stories. My name is Dr. Ryan Gray, and I'm your host here every week. Thank you for taking the time to join me today. I'm excited to have a specialist on to talk all about her specialty. If you haven't yet, I would love for you to share this podcast with your medical school class, with your pre-med club, wherever it may be. Some student reached out to me, someone who's starting medical school in this coming August in 2019, and his class sent out an email, the, the class that is above him, sent out an email saying, hey, here's everything that you should be thinking about before coming. And I was honored to have someone recommend them listening to Specialty Stories. So I would love for you to share this podcast with your fellow classmates. This week, we have a great guest, someone who is a breast oncologist. And we talked to Dr. Stephanie Graff about what brought her to breast oncology. She's out in the community, having been out of training now for eight years. And we talk about what got her into breast oncology. So I actually decided on oncology sort of in the early rotations of medical school. One of my high school teachers used to tell us that whatever you decided to do in life, you had to love to read about, which is really true advice, especially in medicine. And in those early sort of scientific book courses, the science of oncology was the stuff that I couldn't put down. Like I loved the pathophysiology of it. I loved the pharmacology of the oncology drugs. And so then when I moved into clinical rotations, it just fit. Like I already had that interest in the scientific background. And then in oncology, we really get to connect with our patients in this amazing longitudinal way where you're going through something very intense and emotional, and then you get to see them into long-term survivorship. Or for those with metastatic disease, you're seeing them very regularly during a high needs time. And so that just really suited who I am as a person. And it was the right job for me. And I knew pretty instantly when I did the rotation. A lot of students will swear off oncology and hematology for that matter as well, because it's like, well, that's just death and dying and destruction. I don't want to be around that. What do you say when, when students kind of bring up that point? Yeah, I think that that's part of the training environment. So in in training, we rotate in the hospital. We see, you know, most of our training is done on the inpatient side. And inpatient oncology is people who are dying or people who are very sick with the toxicity of treatment. But that's the minority of our patients. My clinic is patients doing remarkably well. I, I focus exclusively on breast oncology. And most of my patients are working their full-time jobs on their chemo. Um, they are not sick. And so, you know, we it, it's not this really depressing job. I mean, certainly people die, but people die of congestive heart failure and liver disease and complications of rheumatoid arthritis too. And so I think it I think it's just important to remember that every field has those highs and lows. So you mentioned you're a breast oncologist. How do you go from 
from going through your training and, and how do you become a breast oncologist? What, what led you down that path? So once I was in my oncology fellowship, um, I actually started doing lung cancer research. So you'll have to stay with me a second. <laughs> I, st- <laughs> I started doing lung cancer research in, per- in part because it was sort of the first mentor that I found and I, I, I attached to uh, was a lung cancer researcher and I really loved it. Then she ended up leaving my training program and going to a different institution during the scope of my fellowship. And so I was mentorless. And then the sort of next mentor I attached myself to was the, was the breast oncologist and it just fit. And so the second half of my oncology fellowship, I was being mentored by the fellowship programs, breast oncologist and it, it, again, it just was the right sort of fit for me that the patients do remarkably well, great longitudinal relationships, really cool science, um, great connection. I'm obviously a woman and most people with breast cancer are women. So, so some nice connectivity there. Um, but in particular, as a sub subspecialist like that, being a breast oncologist as opposed to just a medical oncologist, a lot of it is just defining your niche when you start your practice. I mean, there's no breast oncology sub boards, for example. Um, a lot of training programs will let their fellows sort of define those niches and do a little bit more heavy rotations in a certain subset that they're interested in. Um, but a lot of it's just job placement. And you have found that being out in the community, there's enough patients to really focus in on that without going too general? Yeah. And I think it would depend a little bit on on the field. So for example, sarcoma, which is an exceedingly rare tumor, you're probably not going to be able to be a full-time community sarcoma expert. Um, But I'm in a large group of medical oncologists. There's, I think, 15 partners in my group now. And I see exclusively breast. One of my partners does probably 90% of his practice is GI. Um, two of my partners are actually pretty heavily subspecialized in lung. And then one of my partners exclusively sees GU malignancies. Hmm. So we have, I mean, we have a pretty niche subgroup um, specialty across my practice. And then all of the we also are clinical research sites. So all of the trials that we run, we are principal investigators on our disease type. So all the breast trials that we open, I'm principal investigator for. Interesting. I think we'll, we'll have to dive into being out in the community and still being able to do a lot of clinical research as well. Most students probably yeah. think you have to be in an academic center to do that. <laughs> Not uh, at all. Yeah, that's awesome. So what traits do you think lead to someone being a good breast oncologist? I think that oncology is definitely a communications heavy field. There is a lot to talk about. Um, I think that the lay public's understanding of cancer and cancer treatment is pretty infantile in its development. So you really have to talk them away from the fear into the treatment, why the treatment, how to manage the side effects. And do that sort of concisely in the construct of a clinic appointment. So, you know, I'm lucky that I get nice long clinic appointments with my patients, but there's lots, uh, there's lots to talk about. So I think communication would be definitely one of the key personalities. Um, I think that you have to be resilient. Um, yes, there is still death and dying in oncology. And so I think that making sure that that's not the sort of thing that's really going to be emotionally taxing. Um, is also a trait of most people who find themselves in the field of oncology. 
um, we're probably mostly optimists by that, um, by that nature. Um, and, and I think those are the two big ones I would say. I would hate to go to a, a pessimistic oncologist. Be like, yeah, we can try some stuff, but usually it doesn't work. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> that wouldn't be very good. Um, let's, let's talk for a second about the types of patients that you are seeing as a breast oncologist. Obviously, breast cancer is going to be a huge thing, but, but where are patients coming to you in the stage of their breast cancer? How are you finding them? How are they finding you? And, and what types of patients in, in that general sense are you seeing? So I also run our high-risk women's program. So I do see a fair number of patients identified either by their primary care or GYN or just the breast imaging center, like the radiologist, because they have a striking family history or other significant risk factors. And then they're referred to me in my high-risk women's capacity to talk about risk reduction, genetic counseling and testing, um, whether or not they need to be on any prevention medicines. Um, et cetera. So I get some patients that way. Um, I have a great relationship with the breast surgeons, primary care gynecologists in our city. I will see patients even before they're diagnosed with breast cancer. So it's not unusual for people to call me because their patient felt a lump and I'll work them in and help manage even just the workup of the lump. Um, because, you know, the fear starts the minute you think you might have breast cancer, right? So I get referrals that way. Um, Our breast surgeons are probably obviously my number one referral source. Um, Since I am subspecialty trained in breast oncology, I attend all of our breast cancer tumor boards at the two different hospitals that I work at and um, participate in the discussions around those cases and optimal care. And then lastly, because I'm involved in clinical research, I actually get referrals from all over the country for trials that we have open. So the oncology patient community, particularly the metastatic oncology patient community, are very well informed. They are very engaged and educated about their disease and their disease process. And it's not unusual for them to find me on some sort of, you know, NCI trial search or um, strangely like Twitter or other advocacy groups will know about what trials are going on and patients will connect that way. So um, really diverse directions that patients come to me in order to access care. That's awesome. And and it's all basic breast cancer and, and potential breast cancer patients that you're seeing day in and day out. Correct. Okay. So let's talk about being in the community and being a site doing clinical research. Now, I'm sure the majority of students listening to this probably don't associate community with research. How hard was it for you as a a practice to open up a clinical research site and and really plug into all of these pharmaceutical companies doing this? Yeah. So oncology is probably a little bit different than a lot of other career tracks. Um, In that, in oncology, yes, there are large academic groups and most of the academic research that's happening, some of it is sponsored by pharma, but some of it is sponsored by the big cooperative groups. So like SWOG, Alliance, et cetera. And those are all government funded research. So like NCI funded programs. Then there are a lot of oncology drug development that's happening that's entirely funded by pharma. And they want 
networks that can put a lot of patients on trial, do it effectively and efficiently with good high-level expertise and experience. And so there are several non-academic cancer research networks that are sort of centralized cancer networks. So examples are the Sarah Cannon Research Institute, of which I'm a part, or U.S. Oncology are sort of the two big ones that pop to mind. And pharma typically contracts with Sarah Cannon or U.S. Oncology to hope, like broaden the reach of their trials and improve accessibility for patients to those trials while still maintaining that academic level of experience and expertise in the actual design and delivery of the trial. So my um, my practice is a Sarah Cannon strategic site. So we get access to the Sarah Cannon trial portfolio and are able to bring that to the Kansas City metro area. Very cool. So you get to yeah. still be involved in a lot of research and go out to the community, which yep. will hopefully give some hope. Uh, I guess specifically, and I think that is pretty uh, a pretty unique thing for oncology. So you talked earlier about some of the patients coming to you pre-diagnosis, some coming with a diagnosis. Do you have a a typical breakdown of the types of patients, uh, the numbers of patients that where you're actually diagnosing or versus versus coming to you for treatment? The vast majority of them probably come to me with a diagnosis. And so my guess is probably 15% of patients come to me without a diagnosis, either like in the high-risk setting mm-hmm. or with like a palpable change or an abnormal breast image that then I'm working up and managing. Um, the other 85% are coming to me with a cancer diagnosis. Okay. For students who are very procedure happy, how much uh, procedure time do you get as a breast oncologist? So as a breast oncologist, none. I don't don't biopsy things. Um, Our breast surgeons and our breast radiologists tend to do the breast biopsy. That's just not a part of the medical oncology um, experience. Mm -hmm. But medical oncologists and hematologists doing general med-onc will do bone marrow biopsies. I just, I have partners that specialize in leukemia and lymphoma, and they do all of our bone marrow biopsies for us. So I don't do that procedure anymore. Is that something that you wish you did more of, but you just don't because you like your specialty? You know, yeah, it's well, because of my specialty, yeah. exactly. I um, I really loved procedures as a medical student and as an internal medicine resident. And I thought it would be something that I would miss, but I actually don't at all. It's I, I loved lumbar punctures and thoracentesis, especially as a student and a, and a resident. <laughs> and I clearly haven't done one since I graduated my internal medicine residency and I don't miss it. So, okay. Describe a typical day or a week for you. Um, so typical day, I, uh, leave my house at about seven 30 in the morning every day. That's when my nanny gets there and takes over my kids for me. Um, I live really close to my hospital. So I'm normally at my hospital by seven 45. Um, My clinic doesn't technically start until nine o'clock, but I use my eight to nine o'clock spot as like my add-on spots for my nurses so that when somebody calls with problems, they know it's safe to like put someone there because I'll be here and I'll take care of it. So that spot is booked full, probably 90% of the time I'll get and I'll have eight o'clock patients. And sometimes it's a new diagnosis that we just want seen faster. I see new patients in hour-long slots Um, or it's like sick patients, patients with side effects on chemo or 
you know, a changing symptom that they're worried about. And my nursing staff will add them onto my, my clinic slot between eight and nine. I see my follow-up patients in 15-minute spots. I normally see two to three new patients a day and the rest are follow-ups. Um, I do keep my lunch hour as an actual lunch hour because I need to just sort of close down my mind for a little bit, follow up on emails, eat food. (laughs) Um, And so I see patients from nine to noon, noon to one, I have lunch, one to four, I finish out my afternoon clinic. Then if I have inpatients to see, I'll go round on them. Because I specialize in breast oncology and I keep my patients out of the hospital, again, breast cancer patients do awesome. Um, I normally do not have very many inpatients. I normally have one or two people in the hospital. It's not unusual for me to have no patients in the hospital. And my inpatient rounds take 30 minutes. Like they're, they're super quick. I'm just popping in and saying hi. And more. a lot of my consults, my inpatient consults are more social. Like the patient's in with something else, but they have a great relationship with me and want me to come say hi to them. Mm-hmm. Um, so that puts me to four 30, um, and between four 30 and six is kind of my flex time. A lot of the times I'm signing charts, I'll schedule when you're running clinical trials, you have a lot of clinical trial meetings, um, calls with study monitors, clinical trial charting. That's sort of over and above what normal charting looks like. Um, so I'll do some of that work. (laughs) Yeah. Um, (laughs) lots of extra. And, um, and then I go home. I am I'm home every day by six and hang out with my family and take care of my babies. And that's it. What does call look like for you? So I, again, I'm in a large group. So I'm on call one weekend a month, which isn't bad. Um, I normally consider it sort of a half day. Um, I'm very much in control of the hours. So um, I've alluded to the fact I have kids. I have a nine-year-old, a six-year-old, and a four-year-old. And so my nine-year-old plays competitive soccer. So if he has a soccer game at nine o'clock in the morning, I don't start rounds until noon because I'll go see soccer first. Um, so I'm very in control of the hours. Um, but I'm normally, I'm my weekend rounds are normally four to five hours um, on a kind of average weekend. And then I'm back home. Um, I very, very rarely have a middle of the night emergency. Almost everything I can handle with a phone call. Um, just because most oncologic emergencies aren't actually medical oncology emergencies, they're either radiation oncology or surgery emergencies. Um, and so most stuff I can handle over the phone. Um, I do, when I'm on call, I do general calls. So I'd see leukemics and I see hematologic diseases as well um, on weekend call. And then after any new consults that come in over the weekend that aren't breast cancer, we just divide out amongst my partners. Do you feel like you have enough time for family life outside of medicine? Oh, absolutely. I feel like I have a really good balance. Let's talk a minute about the the patients that you see. I know a lot of subspecialties, they tend to end up being kind of the primary care doc for <laughs> yeah. the patient as they're going through stuff. Is that similar for you as a, a breast oncologist? Yes, definitely. And and my nurses always laugh, but like my patients will call for like, you know, somebody who's like five years out from their breast cancer will call and ask if we can refill their Lipitor. And I'm like, <laughs> I am not checking your cholesterol. Like, I, I am not going to refill that. Uh, so yeah, I think a lot of people end up, end up connecting with their subspecialist as a primary because 
a lot of patients with, you know, and clearly this is true with a cancer diagnosis, but it's true with other stuff too. People with like, like the rheumatologic diseases or the other ones that come to mind, they need sort of regular follow-up and monitoring because of the nature of those diseases and long-term risks and the side effect profile of the medications. And so they're scheduling, you know, three or six month follow-up appointments every time they leave our office for the next one. And for a person, an otherwise healthy adult, maybe they're not scheduling their annual follow-up or being seen every three to six months with their primary care doctor. And so they just sort of develop this longitudinal relationship with their subspecialist. That's again, one of the things that I really, really love about my career, um, but does mean that when my patient gets admitted to the hospital with a totally unrelated whatever it is, diverticulitis flare, kidney stone, atrial fibrillation, I often get consulted and the the hospitalist or the primary care doctor on the consult will write, patient just wants to see you. <laughs> That's the reason for the consult, which is like, I love that. Like, I love that it means a lot to my patient that I just go and say hi and kind of serve as a cheerleader for their hospital stay. Um, and, and I'm glad to do that. Yeah. You're not dictating their care while they're in the hospital. <laughs> <laughs> they don't want me dictating that. Yeah. Care. Yeah. Um, that's awesome. Let's talk about the the training path to become an oncologist and then a, a breast oncologist. Like you said, there isn't really specific training for that, but what's the training path to get to this point? So, um, obviously after a traditional, after medical school, um, for medical oncology, um, you do an internal medicine residency. After your internal medicine residency, you do an oncology fellowship. Most fellowships are combination medical oncology and hematology. There's a handful of training programs in the country that you can do just medical oncology or just hematology. Um, but I feel like particularly for somebody that's not 100% certain on which way the wind is going to carry their career in 2019, still, it's probably more employable to go through a training program for both medical oncology and hematology. And it sounds like potentially more employable because maybe as, as a new doc coming out, you want to build a practice and to build a practice, you need to be able to see more than just the, the cancer patients. Yeah, you need to sort of be able to see everything. You need to be able to help cover call for your group. And so like if you're not cert board certified in hematology or board eligible in hematology, your group, you know, a lot of weekend call is hematology stuff. Mm -hmm. A lot of hospitalized medonc and hematology consults are thrombocytopenia, HIT, um, anemia, a, a lot of blood stuff is, is a reason for consult during my weekend calls. Yeah. So good idea to have that training. Do you, yeah. do you think that, uh, the match process and matching into Hemonc is competitive? I, you know, I don't, I, it, I think so. I mean, I think when you think outside, I, I mean, I think in internal medicine, Probably cardiology and GI remain kind of the top two competitive, but I think hemonc's probably a close third. That's not something that I've actually continued to pay a ton of attention to now that I'm out in the world. Yeah. Um, so maybe that's changed over the last couple of years, but certainly when I was applying, I think oncology was probably in the third position to cardiology and GI for competition. Okay. 
Let's talk about subspecializing. So you, as a, a breast oncologist, have found your subspecialty, and you talked about some other subspecialties within your practice that you're at. What other kind of things can students potentially be looking at subspecializing in uh, or finding their interest in and niching down in once they are uh, an oncologist? Yeah. So there are true dedicated bone marrow transplant subfellowship. So you can actually graduate and have another diploma and another board certification in bone marrow transplant. Um, so that's definitely one. Um, but then, you know, there basically every organ system you can subspecialize in. So you can do neuro-oncology fellowships actually out of neurology. So there are people who do um, a neurology residency and then a neuro-oncology um, fellowship. Um, gynecology oncology is its own career path as well, although there are medical oncologists that specialize and treat gynecologic malignancies. There are gynecologists that do gynecology oncology fellowships and manage gynoc malignancies both surgically and medically with things like chemotherapy. Whereas if you're going into gynec out of medical oncology, you would still need a surgeon to handle that surgical piece. Mm. Um, and then, you know, again, sort of that academic path, there are GI oncologists, breast oncologists, sarcoma experts, benign heme, lymphoma, multiple myeloma, um, myelodysplastic syndrome, acute leukemia are all subspecialties, breast, lung, um, I feel like I've said them all, GU. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, like anything you you want. And it, I mean, I think a lot of it depends on um, how rare the tumor is. It's easier to subspecialize in something that's common, again, just because of that practice building. Um, and then the size of your practice. If you join a practice of three oncologists, it's going to be really hard for you to be super subspecialized because there's going to be a lot more diversity in the caseload that then you'll have to help your partners manage. But if you join a large group, which is an increasing percentage of private practice oncology positions are in large groups, um, there's a great opportunity to sort of define a subset of patients that you have a particular interest in. Once you are done with your training, the students typically have a residence at that point or fellows typically have the decision point of, do I stay in academics or do I go out into the community? For you, what was that algorithm and, and why did you decide to go out into the community? When I started sort of looking at opportunities, I knew I wanted to stay in Kansas City for some personal and family reasons and interviewed at a bunch of different groups. And the private practice groups were really just sort of a great fit for me. My internal medicine residency split between two hospitals and one was a private, you know, sort of for-profit sector hospital that had residents from the academic site in every single field rotating at that center. So it was sort of an academic-like or at least a education-heavy environment mm -hmm. in a private practice hospital. And then we also had the more traditional academic site. And for our internal medicine residency, we had two internal medicine chiefs, and one was the chief at the private practice facility, and one was the chief at the university. And I was actually the private practice internal medicine chief. Um, and 
as a part of that internal medicine was served on the hospital committee and um, rotated with the private practice hospitalist team and did resident education in my role as the chief uh, resident there. And so I actually had thought I was going to join that practice and that hospital when I graduated because I was always already very, very familiar with the medical staff and the hospital administration. And then my current practice that I joined, which is I, the job I'm in now is the job I joined when I graduated, um, just felt like home when I interviewed. Um, it was just absolutely the right fit. I connected better with my now partners and really liked the opportunities and the growth that was developing. They were just starting to really develop and emerge their research program in a more strong and meaningful way. And it ended up just being the right position. For the osteopathic medical student listening to this or resident listening to this, do you see any negative bias towards the DOs in oncology? I don't. I I guess I would always say that, you know, as a, I'm, I am an MD, you know, I don't know if I don't notice it because it's not happening to me, but I feel like there are several DOs that are, are very well respected nationally in the field of oncology without any particular bias. My own group has DOs within it. Um, I, I, I don't notice that, um, Oncology also has a pretty strong international medical graduate community, um, and I don't feel like there's a lot of bias there either. Um, but I would always encourage somebody to ask, you know, yeah. ask that to their colleagues. Yeah. Good. What do you wish for the future primary care doc out there? What do you wish they knew about what you're doing day in and day out as a breast oncologist to help their patients and ultimately help you? Oh gosh, our primary care doctors do such a fantastic job. Um, it's always okay to pick up the phone and call, I guess is what I would, I would want them to know. I know that sometimes patients are calling and asking them stuff. Like I, I've gotten a lot of calls recently about the measles vaccine for our cancer survivors from primary care doctors, if it's okay to revaccinate or if their patients need to be revaccinated after chemotherapy exposure, things like that. Um, you know, it, it's fun to engage and talk about this career that I love with other people that are curious. So if they have questions about particular mutual patients, but, but certainly just oncology in general, that's what we're here for. That's interesting. If somebody goes through a bone marrow transplant, do they have to go through the, all of their vaccines again? I've never thought about that. Yeah, they do. There's a, there's a whole, for, for a bone marrow transplant patient, there's a whole schedule and it's typically administered and managed by the bone marrow transplant program. But for most people with solid tumors, the answer is actually no. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I don't know why. It just popped in my head. I'm like, it's an interesting <laughs> question. <laughs> yeah. Uh, very cool. But not, not something for you as a, as a breast oncologist that you're dealing with. Yeah. Very cool. What specialties are you working the closest with? Um, so I, I joke around all the time that the radiation oncologists I talk to more than I talk to my husband, <laughs> um, because most of our patients with breast cancer end up having radiation. My, my radiation oncologist and I are regularly communicating and timing out, you know, when does their chemo end? When is their radiation going to start? Do they need radiation? Um, in breast oncology, I also work a ton with plastic surgery um, for breast reconstructions and breast surgery, obviously, who are who are doing the the surgery. So those are 
are probably my big four. Um, pathology and radiology. Oh my God, they are the heart of the hospital. I couldn't live without them. Um, we have a really robust nurse navigator uh, program, which isn't uh, you know, a physician specialty, but our nurse navigators do a ton helping our patients move between their diagnostic imaging and their surgery and their systemic therapy for their cancer diagnosis and radiation oncology and helping to connect all the pieces. So they are an amazing team member. Um, other subspecialists that I work with are then sort of the sequelae of metastatic disease. So unfortunately, I work a lot with our neurosurgeons because a lot of breast cancer metastasizes to the brain or the spine. Um, and so I do, all, my neurosurgeons are also my spine surgeons at my hospital. So between treating brain mets or stabilizing spine metastasis, I work with my neurosurgeons a lot. Um, and then interventional radiology does a ton of stuff for us, whether that's, you know, chemoembolization for uh, metastasis or port placement for some of our patients, our interventional radiologists do a lot of work as well that we're collaborating with. For the, for the patients directing and interacting with you for, um, for their breast cancer, what percentage of them are going and actually getting mastectomies and, and dealing with um, the plastic surgery side of things? So not just patients with mastectomies get to have plastic surgery. So, so um, interestingly, even patients doing lumpectomy or breast conservation, sometimes they'll do a contralateral reduction to help match symmetry, particularly mm -hmm. if it's a larger reduction, or they'll do like a lift at the same time. I mean, there's a lot of options for patients depending on their, their presentation and their tumor size and their wishes and their native breast size. Um, with my mastectomy patients, we recommend that every single mastectomy patient at least talk to a plastic surgeon, even mm -hmm. if they want to stay flat, which is a totally viable choice. Mm -hmm. um, but I think it, you know, I tell patients one of my phrases that I hear myself say over and over again is information is power. It's not going to hurt to go talk to that plastic surgeon and find out what's available. Yeah. And it goes both ways. I have patients that go and talk to plastic surgery about breast reconstruction very eager thinking it's what they're going to do when they go and are like, Oh no, I'm <laughs> that's too much. Yeah. Um, and I have patients who don't think it's for them and come back and are just amazed with, with the way that science has advanced the, the techniques. I mean, patients just look amazing after breast reconstruction. So, yeah. um, tons of my patients work with plastic surgery. What, I guess a better question I should have asked was what percentage of the patients need a mastectomy? Um, well, that, I guess that's hard to answer. Um, mastectomy and lumpectomy followed by radiation are roughly equivalent in terms of cure and survival. Hmm. So very few patients need a mastectomy. Um, tumors that are very large sometimes are only candidates for a mastectomy, but with neoadjuvant chemo, a lot of the times we can shrink a large tumor and they're still a candidate for a lumpectomy if they're highly motivated. Mm -hmm. um, certainly, we consider mastectomy and even bilateral mastectomy in patients with genetic mutations, but that's a minority of breast cancer patients. Only about 5 to 10% will have a genetic mutation. Mm -hmm. So, um, 
I think that the minority of my patients need a mastectomy, but nationally, I think the statistics would tell us that about half of patients choose a mastectomy. Hmm. Is that more just, um, just comfort? Like, let me, Personal let me preference. remove it all. And yeah. Yeah. Okay. You know, I think no matter how much we try to educate our patients that the outcomes are the same and that removing more breast tissue doesn't increase their likelihood of quote unquote beating it and quote that there is just some sort of inner voice yeah. that drives most of our patients to feel like, or at least that a subset of patients to feel like they're just, they just really want a bilateral mastectomy. Yeah. Now, obviously you're doing a ton of research. Uh, what other opportunities, if any, are there outside of clinical medicine for a breast oncologist? So I, um, my hospital also has residents. So there's lots of opportunities for education um, in terms of trainees. But I think that especially in oncology, there's a lot of opportunities to educate the broader community about cancer. Um, I do a lot of speaking events for cancer-related organizations. Like I'm actually on the regional board for the American Cancer Society. And so I'll do um, education events talking about what cancer looks like or what's happening in cancer in that community education role as well. Um, so educator is one of my hats. Volunteer. Um, I, like I just said, I serve on the American Cancer Society uh, board for our region, um, but I also volunteer with the American Society of Clinical Oncology, which is our large sort of national organization for medical oncology. Um, and there, there's tons of other opportunities to do volunteer work, even international mission work that can be done in oncology-related fields. And then obviously I do clinical research. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that there's a lot of opportunities to, to do different work in a scope of oncology. There's also, you know, there's a lot of work to be done on a governmental side for oncology, like the NIH employs medical oncologists, the FDA employs, employs medical oncologists. So there's like a pretty broad spectrum of oncology related careers you can consider. Wow. What do you know now that you wish you knew before going into breast oncology? Ooh, that's hard. <laughs> I don't know. I feel like I went in pretty eyes wide open. I, what I know now is that I'm really happy and I wouldn't choose anything different. Um, I I think I was probably as a trainee worried about how I was going to be a doctor and a mom and it just magically works itself out. I promise for everyone listening. <laughs> magically <laughs> with a little bit less sleep magically. <laughs> <laughs> you know what you like life is choosing, right? So yep. there's, there's always, there's always a little bit of a juggle, but it, it happens and it happens in a way that's, that just fits your vision for your life because those, you know, cause you made the choice, right? Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, I think I would, I'm shocked with how well everything has sort of worked out there. Um, I think I always had worried a little bit if there would be some sense of emotional burnout, just like you said, with, with the sort of death and dying perspective oncology. And I have never felt that. I mean, yes, I am sad with a given patient on a given day because it's not going the way that I want to, or a patient that I've taken care of for a long time is transitioning to hospice. But just the ability I had to be a part of their life. And even when I can't cure somebody's cancer, the fact that I can play a role in helping prolong their life or ease their 
symptoms of their disease. I mean, that's powerful. And so I, I think that the things that I was worried about have not manifested in my practice. And it just has really reinforced that this is the right career for me. Yeah. What do you like the most about being a breast oncologist? The patients. I just, I love, I love connecting with them. I love hearing about their life outside of medicine. I love um, helping them through their cancer experience, regardless of what that cancer experience looks like, whether it's, you know, stage zero DCIS or a BRCA mutation or metastatic disease. I mean, it's, you know, your, your journey and your experience is, is hard for you. I think sometimes patients will say, well, I know other people have it worse, but that doesn't make their experience any less difficult for them to tackle. And I just love being to be a part of that and help them through whatever it is that they're facing. What do you like the least? Um, <laughs> peer to peer calls <laughs> <laughs> with the insurance companies. Right. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, so not, I mean, not talking to other doctors out in the community, but peer to peer, just for the listener who doesn't know that what that means. The, yeah, the talking to yeah, insurance companies. I can better explain that. <laughs> With, uh, sometimes in oncology, we order stuff, and and insurance, like insurance, has to authorize it to pay for it, and sort of the default setting, I feel like with insurance is no. Oh, it's true. There was just a huge lawsuit because of that. Yeah, their, their, their <laughs> default setting is just to say no. Yeah. And so then you have to to make a phone call and it's called a peer-to-peer and it, it's kind of a fancy lie because sometimes it's not another medical oncologist. It's yep. like a retired pediatrician and you yep. have to <laughs> you have <sighs> to explain why you want this particular test for this particular patient. And I'd say, you know, 98% of the time it's a frustration that I have to take those two seconds out to make that phone call, but it all goes through perfectly. Um, but every once in a while, they just dig in and aren't willing to do something that is totally standard of care. Exactly. And so it's, it's, that's, you know, that's definitely the frustration, but it's such a small part of what we do every day. Yeah. For the student who may be interested in this in the future, do you see any major changes coming to the field that he or she should be aware of? I think that the most recent big advance we've had is immunotherapy. So the way that we're treating cancer is changing a lot. Instead of the sort of traditional cytotoxic chemotherapy drugs, we're now using more medicines that target the patient's immune system specifically. We also do a ton of genomic profiling. So rather than treating lung cancer as lung cancer, we're treating lung cancer as ALK mutated or ROS1 mutated or EGFR mutated lung cancer that we're looking at that genomic subset and tailoring treatment. And I think that that is going to continue to evolve so that rather than medical oncology saying, you know, this is the organ that your cancer started in and here's the chemo cocktail that we've shown works, we're going to say these are the 20 gene mutations that your cancer harbors. And this is the cocktail of medicines that helps correct for those genomic abnormalities. And so I think it's going to get a little bit more complicated in terms of matching drugs with the signature of the cancer. Um, but as that data emerges, it's been really fun to participate in and really meaningful for patients that we have broader options for treatment. And I think it's a really exciting time to be an oncologist. 
You already mentioned that you wouldn't choose anything else. So you, you took the thunder from my question about if you had to do it all <laughs> over again, would you choose the same? So that's an easy yes absolutely. for you. Yeah, yeah, I would, I would absolutely choose to be a medical oncologist again. Any last words of wisdom for the medical student, the pre-med or the, the internal medicine resident out there looking at getting into or potentially thinking about medical oncology or breast oncology? No, I mean, I don't be shy about asking for mentors um, would probably be one of my pieces of advice. Um, a lot of the times your faculty at your medical school or university, you know, don't know that you're considering that career path or looking for that advice and wisdom. And it's easy to just reach out, send them an email and say, hey, I'm interested in connecting a little bit more and getting more advice about how I can get my foot in the door and see what opportunities arise. Um, and then just echoing that advice my high school teacher gave me of, of really needing to lo uh, love reading about whatever you choose, because so much of a career in medicine is staying on top of what's changing in your career in medicine. Um, and so making sure that you're really connecting with the science of oncology and, and the data of oncology is going to help you succeed in the field. All right, there you have it. Breast oncology, a subspecialty of medical oncology. If that's something you are interested in, hopefully you got a lot of great information out of this podcast today. If you are unsure of where you want to go, maybe you want to look into HemeOnc now at this point and potentially one of these subspecialties inside of medical oncology. If you have any suggestions for future specialty stories, just shoot me an email, Ryan at medicalschoolhq.net. Hope you have a great week. Next week, we have another awesome guest, someone who is a blood banking and transfusion medicine specialist. We'll see you next time here on Specialty Stories. 